All right, we're going to jump in and go ahead and get started. I got to be honest, I did not expect uh, the room to be like this. Normally, if you want to create seats, say you're talking about prayer and you have plenty of seats, right? So I am pumped that you are here. I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. I am going to begin by leading us in a word of prayer. And then I want to dive right in. I'll tell you who I am and tell you what we're going to be talking about today. So let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the men and women in this room. I thank you, God, for what you're doing in their lives. I thank you for this opportunity to be able to look at your word together. God, I pray that in these moments you would raise up a generation of desperate believers who cry out to you in prayer. And in response to the prayers of your people, Lord, would you turn the world upside down? God, we thank you for what you're going to do. We thank you for what you're going to teach us. I'm going to ask you just right now before I say amen in your own heart, would you just ask the Holy Spirit of God to speak to you in this moment? If you don't know how to say that, say it this way. Lord, give me ears to hear what it is you want to say to me. And then say this, Lord, I'm going to do my very best to listen and respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my name is Vance Pittman. Uh, I am not uh, one of the salt network guys. I know most of the, the people leading these breakouts are salt network planters. I'm not one of those. I am a church planter. Uh, God called my family to plant a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, 23 years ago. So I know there's some UNLV people in the room uh, because Salt Network is planting its next church in Las Vegas next year. My daughter and son-in-law are leading the team that's going to be planting that church there in Las Vegas. So I guess by family, I'm now in Salt Network, but I am currently the president of what's called Send Network, and I enunciate the D. I didn't say Send Network, all right? I was president of that one too before Jesus. I think we all were. Amen. But I'm president of Send Network, which is the largest church planting network in North America. Salt Network is a family of churches within the umbrella of Send Network. So we put a lot of resources, training, assessments into the Salt Network planting strategy. Our family of churches, we plant about 800 churches a year in North America. So last year we had 745 new church plants that started all over North America. And I'm praying that God raise up all of you to become a part of church planting things. Some of you as church planters, staff members, worship leaders, salt company directors, but others of you can simply take your job, your skill, and your passion and use it where you live, work, and play for the glory and honor of God. You can take your career, whatever it is, whatever God's called you to do and be, whether that's contracting, architecture, accounting, school teaching, doctor, nurse, stay-at-home mom, whatever it is, and what if you go plant your life where some church is planting and you become a missionary in that city and leverage your life for the sake of the mission? We need all of you to seek the Lord about God's call on your life to go and do just that. Amen? It wasn't real hearty, but I'll take it. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So let me tell you my story. September 1999, 
minding my own business. I'm originally, I just talked to some Florida State people down here on the front row and apologize. I'm originally from Alabama. I know the Florida State Alabama thing's a little tender right now. Um, so I've already made reconciliation steps with these brothers and sisters on the front row. Uh, but I'm originally from Alabama. God called my family to Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, if you're from Alabama, you don't go to Las Vegas. And if you do, you don't tell anybody, right? <laughs> How many of you have been to Las Vegas before and are willing to admit it at a Christian conference? Amen. Come on. That's all right. Uh, where I'm from, people don't go to Las Vegas. If they do, they don't tell anybody because where I'm from, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from there. Like it's close. But in September 1999, I'm, I'm senior associate pastor of a great church in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and God spoke to me one morning out of Luke chapter 4 where Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. I wasn't looking for God's direction in my life. I was just pursuing Christ's life in the gospels. I was looking for stuff in Jesus that was not in me. I read that verse that morning and I saw some stuff in Jesus that wasn't in me. I saw a passion for the kingdom of God to be expanded in other cities. Did you hear it? Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent. Jesus understood his own life to be sent on a mission into this world. And the mission was about the kingdom of God being expanded in cities and nations all over the world. And in my own life, I'd been pastoring for about 10 years. In my own life, I was pretty passionate about the church, but I didn't really think much about my city. I didn't think much about the kingdom of God. And I saw this stuff in Jesus that wasn't in me and got my wife. We knelt down in our living room and said, Lord, yes, we don't know where, we don't know when, we don't even know what. But the answer is yes. Two weeks later, a church from Woodstock, Georgia, reached out to me and said, we feel led of the Lord to start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, and God's put it on our heart. You're to be the pastor of that church. So two weeks earlier, we said yes. Two weeks later, God said, Las Vegas, Nevada. We did something I don't recommend anyone ever do. <laughs> we packed our family up, began the process of moving to uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, and we'd never visited the city one time. I don't recommend that, uh, but we were so certain of God's call that we knew if we did anything but relocate to Las Vegas, Nevada, we'd be living in open disobedience to his will for our lives. And so we said yes. We packed up and moved. We went east first, went to Woodstock, Georgia to become a part of that church for a year because I believe convictionally networks don't start churches, individuals don't start churches, churches plant churches. So we wanted to become a part of that church and be sent out of that church as missionaries to go to a city and engage that city with the gospel. So we did that. We, we went there for a year, then we launched out. We arrived in Las Vegas two days before Christmas 2000, December 23rd, 2000. I'd been on the field for about a week. My telephone rings. For that year in Woodstock, Georgia, we'd, we'd gotten 13 families that were going to move with us to Las Vegas. We put a plan together. We had a strategy. We were ready to execute this plan. We prayed, God, would you bless what we're about to go do in Vegas? We get to Vegas. First week, phone rings. On the other end of the line is a lady named Letty Peralta. She's from the Philippines. Letty said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. Now, I've since learned in Las Vegas, that's a dangerous offer. There's some stories in Vegas pastors should not hear. But here's what she said. She said, I moved from the Philippines to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. She said, while living in Hong Kong as a house servant, 
I would get jobs and homes and I would send the money back to the Philippines to provide for my family. She said, I met an American family and moved in with them and I became the caretaker of their home. She said, at first I would live in their home Monday through Saturday and then on Sundays I would live underneath the bridge and then go back and live with them Monday through Saturday. But over the course of several weeks, I began to become part of this family. And then over months and years, this family adopted me into their family. So much so that when my family moved from Hong Kong back to America, I moved with them. We got all the paperwork and I settled with them in America. She said, I I settled in a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I visited a church called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, and I heard the gospel and the kingdom of God like I'd never heard it before in my life. And she said, God changed my life, but my family got uprooted again They worked for a major computer corporation in America, and they got sent to Las Vegas, Nevada. I only got to go to that church like six times. And she said, Pastor, I've been in Las Vegas for a year and a half. She said, I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? I'm standing there on the phone with my jaw hanging wide open because I just packed my wife and three kids at the time. We now have four. We packed in everything we own in a green Dodge minivan in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia. Drove 2,000 miles across the country to Las Vegas, Nevada. Nobody even knew Letty Peralta existed on the planet. And I realized something in that moment. And that what I realize is God didn't invite us to Las Vegas to start something. God invited us to Las Vegas to get in on something that he'd already begun long before I got there. And he was going to be doing long after I was off the scene. Let me tell you the quick story of the last two decades. Two decades ago, we moved to Las Vegas. We started our living room with 18 people, started engaging the city with the gospel. I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a second, but 20 years later, that church has baptized 5,000 new believers into that fellowship in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hang on, hang on. 54 languages spoken in that fellowship. This room's diverse. This isn't as diverse as our church in Las Vegas. It literally looks like every tribe, tongue, people, nation. That church in Las Vegas has now planted 80 churches out of our church, sent out 400 people out of our fellowship. We have missionaries serving out of our fellowship, career on four continents around the world, have another 20 in the pipeline to go globally. We've started ministries in the city of Las Vegas. We have a two-year in-house residential program for junior high girls that are caught in human trafficking. We take these girls in off the streets. We get them from the judicial system there. There was nothing for juveniles. If you were trafficked as a juvenile, you get thrown in the court system. Because you're a juvenile, you can't be arrested. They spit you back out on the streets. You get trafficked all over again. We took took these junior high girls in. We taught them job skill, life training. We got them GEDs. We introduced them to a God who loved them and have seen God bring restoration to juvenile girls. We began to get involved in the foster care community, wanting to see the foster care community in Las Vegas transform because in every state in America but Nevada, if every church in every state would adopt one kid in the foster adoption system, the foster adoption system would be ended tomorrow, meaning this, in every state in America, there are more churches in those states, then there are children awaiting adoption in those states. 
Meaning if every church just raised up one family, we'd put the system out of business. But not in Nevada. There were more children than there were churches. So we, we wanted to change that. We wanted to plan enough churches so that we could end the foster adoption system in Vegas. We, we now have 400 families in Las Vegas that are foster adopting children in that city. We're the only partner with the Department of Family Services that is, has an off-site training to, to teach parents and families. We walk with families through care groups. Why am I telling you? Here's why I'm telling you all this. I get a church planner a week that calls me and says, man, how'd you do it? How does a white dude from Alabama, like if you don't know much about Alabama, Alabama's not known for its racial progress. How does a white dude from Alabama see God birth a multi-ethnic church with a heart for the nations, change a city like Vegas? What was your strategy? And I'm not trying to be super spiritual. Here's the honest to God truth. One lady. One lady from the Philippines. Begged God. For a year and a half. And for 22 years. We have ridden a wave of the favor of God's activity. Because one lady asked God to do it. North America is one of two continents in the world where Christianity is declining. Let me tell you one of the reasons why. We don't pray. We're not desperate for God. We got our programs, our bands, our planning center, our sermons, our strategies, our degrees. We can put on conferences and church service for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, whether God shows up or not. We know how to manufacture it. And yet we live in one of the two continents in the world where Christianity is shrinking. When if you get on a plane with me and go to South Asia or you go to China or you go to northern or southern Africa, You know what's happening over there? The gospel is exploding. Did you know that right now the largest people movement to the gospel in the history of their their civilization is happening in the country of Iran? In Iran right now, there is a movement among Persian-speaking peoples to the gospel like has never been seen in the history of that people. God is alive and at work all over the world. And get this, we are living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus on a daily basis around the world right now than at any other single time in human history. You didn't hear what I said because if you'd heard what I said, you'd have said something. So I'm going to give you another shot at it. Here we go. We are living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. And get this, God raised up your generation for such a time as this to get in on what could be the finishing of the mission of God and the ushering in of his kingdom to every tribe, tongue, people, nation. But that will not happen if we don't pray. God in his sovereignty, has chosen to limit his activity 
to the prayers of his people. Let me say that one more time. God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. Now, before you write me off theologically, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying God needs us. God don't need us. Amen. I mean, he's God. The title God means you can do what you want, how you want. He's God. But as you understand his word, God has chosen to accomplish his mission through the prayers of his people. I've told you my personal story. It's not just my personal story. Let me tell you a global story. Let me take you on a trip around the world. In 1857, in the United States of America, it started in New York City. What's called historically the Second Great Awakening broke out. In a period of about 18 months in America, one million people became followers of Jesus Christ. In, the, in, in today's numbers, that would be like somewhere between, in the next year and a half, 10 to 20 million Americans becoming followers of Jesus Christ. That's 1857, Second Great Awakening. Started on Fulton Street in New York City. Began to spread all over America. Then a few years later in 1904, a revival broke out in Wales. And in a period of six months in Wales, the Welch Revival led by a man named Evan Roberts broke out. And over 100,000 people came to Christ in Wales. So started in North America in 1857. By 1904, 1905, it's now in Europe and Wales. Then in 1905, it moved to India. And in India, people movement to the gospel broke out. And in a matter of two days, 8,000 people came to. What if, what if in the next two days we saw 8,000 people in Des Moines surrender their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, the problem is we think this stuff is just Bible stuff, but it's not today. But here's what I want you to know. The same God that was sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 1 and the same God that was sitting on the throne in 1857 is the same God who's sitting on the throne today. You know the problem? We're not asking God to do this kind of stuff anymore. We're not desperate for God. Let's keep moving around the world. 1906, 1907, it moves to North Korea. North Korea, the country that we all know from the news today, is this closed communist dictatorship. In 1906, 1907... In a period of about 15 months, 80,000 people became followers of Jesus Christ in North Korea. Then in 1927, it broke out in Shantung, China. Shantung, China. A movement of God broke out in China, started in the Shantung province, that increased the Christian population in China by more than 10 times over 30 years. There were periods of years where 40 to 50,000 people per day were coming to faith in Jesus Christ in China. So get this. 1857 starts in North America to Wales, to India, to North Korea, to China. If I had a map laid out flat, 
from 1857 to 1927. That's a period of 70 years. That's about one generation. The gospel moved across the entire globe in profound ways. You know what every one of those revivals had in common? In the United States, before it broke out in 1857, for two years, a group of people met every day in New York City and began to pray. In Wales, they prayed for five years. In India, they prayed for two years. In North Korea, they prayed for two to three years. In China, there were four years of prayer meetings. Here's what I want you to hear me say. Ian Bounds said it this way. The story of every great Christian achievement is really the history of answered prayer. You see God moving powerfully anywhere in the world. You dig deep enough, let me tell you what you'll always find. A remnant of God's people who were praying desperately for God to move. Pastor, are you saying there's power in prayer? No. There is not power in prayer. There is power in the one to whom we pray. You see, if I think there's power in prayer, I'm putting faith in my faith. I'm putting faith in my effort. I'm putting faith in my work. There's no power in prayer. There's power in the one to whom we pray. And because of Jesus, we have been invited into the very throne room of God where with boldness we can have access to the Father and we can seek Him in prayer. How many of you believe God is on mission in the world today? Let me see your hand. Hear this statement. He will not move if we don't pray. Wait a minute. Don't you believe God's sovereign? Absolutely, I believe God's sovereign. Don't you believe God can do what he wants to do? I believe God can do what he wants to do. You just said he won't move if we don't pray. Why? Because that's the way he sovereignly ordained it. Just like you can't be saved without putting faith in Jesus. God could have saved you by just going, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. But you've got to put your faith in Christ. That's the means by which God sovereignly ordained us to experience salvation. Is salvation a work of sovereign grace by a sovereign God? Absolutely. But every person I know that's gotten in on that sovereign work of sovereign grace by a sovereign God expressed their faith in Jesus Christ in response to hearing the gospel and surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. It's the means by which he ordained it. God has ordained that he will work in this world and he longs to work in this world. Here's what I have in my mind. I have this in my mind this picture of a sovereign God waiting to pour out his movement in North America, waiting on his people to pray. And because we got time for anything else but prayer lesson, let your assault company or let your local church call it a concert, we'll pack it out. Call it a conference, we'll pack it out. Call it a prayer meeting. You ain't packing it out. We got time for anything but praying. Isn't that just like the enemy? He knows the answer. He knows the means by which God works in the world. 
So, so let me show you this in a text of scripture quickly. I, I've explained it to you practically in my own life. I've shown it to you globally, historically. Now let me show it to you biblically. If you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. It is, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. I'm sorry. Is, is Cliff Notes still a thing in college? Y'all know about Cliff's Notes? Oh, man, I'm sorry if you don't know about Cliff's Notes. When I was in college, we didn't have computers and Internet, and we had to read big old thick books. And if you couldn't, didn't have time to read the book, there was a cheat sheet called Cliff's Notes where you could read a little bitty book that told you all the important information from the really big book. What I'm about to read you in 1 Timothy 2 is a Cliff's Notes version of the whole meta narrative of Scripture. If I was going to explain to you the whole story of Genesis to Revelation, Paul does it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 3 and going down to verse 7. In five verses, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, Paul gives the Cliff's Notes version of the whole story, the whole arc of Scripture, and he's doing this because he's writing this letter to a young church planter that Paul had raised up after he planted the church at Ephesus and he installed Timothy as the pastor of that church, and he's writing this letter to tell Timothy, Timothy, God's moving in the world, and this is how you need to lead the church at Ephesus to get in on what God's doing. So let's pick it up in verse Three, this, these first two verses, verse three and four, here's what this is. This is God's heart for the peoples of the earth. Look at verse three. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's the desire of God for the peoples of the earth. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, and if your theology doesn't let you say that's what the Bible says, change your theology and get it in line with the Bible. It's good for us to have some verses in Scripture that press our theology back to a dependence on what does the Word of God say. And the Word of God says, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Is that a universalistic belief that all people will be saved? No. It's an expression of the heart of God who the Bible says so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should, have, should not perish but have eternal life. So there's God's heart for the peoples of the earth. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5 tells us God's gift to the peoples of the earth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul says, Timothy, it's God's desire that all the peoples of the earth come to know him. But not only that, God's made a provision in his son Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection where man can be reconciled back to God. Sinful man can be forgiven and made right with God through the provision of Jesus who's the one and only mediator between God and man. You with me so far? If you're with me, say amen. Look at verse 7. Here's God's mission to the peoples of the earth. Paul says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I don't understand why that line's even in the scriptures. I don't know if Paul had a problem with lying. I don't know. If <laughs> I'm telling the truth, Timothy. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's what Paul says. God's desire is that all the peoples of the earth may know him. 
God's made a provision in his son Jesus so that all peoples can know him. And Timothy, now you and I in the church, we've been set apart to take this message of the gospel of Jesus to the peoples of the earth so that they can come to know him. That's the whole story of the Bible, right? God loves the peoples of the earth. God sent Jesus into the world to reconcile man back to himself. And God's called us as his people to go to the ends of the earth and share the good news of Jesus, right? If you see that, say amen. I know what you're thinking. I thought you said you were going to talk to us about prayer. Everything I just read for you is sandwiched in between verses 1 and 2 and verse 8. So go back to verse 1. I'm reading the ESV. But I don't, what does the first phrase in verse 1 say? Say it out loud. What does it say? First of all, somebody else, what does it say? I urge. So those, they get flipped. Those are the first two phrases. First of all, or I urge. It's actually in the Greek language. It's first of all. It can be translated above else, above all else, or before anything else. So what did he just say? He just said, God loves the peoples of the world and wants them to know him. God gave his son Jesus so they can know him. God's commissioned his church to go tell them they can know him through Jesus. But first of all, first of all, then what does he say? I urge that you teach people how to share the gospel so they can build relational bridges and go communicate the gospel clearly and effectively so people can understand it. Is that what verse 1 says? First of all, you need to do demographic studies into the communities around you so you can build relational bridges that allow the gospel to walk from your life into their life. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all people. Then go down to verse 8. I desire then... That in every place, the men, the brothers, the sisters, the people should learn how to defend their faith against the questions and apologetic answers of the day. Is that what your text says? I urge that we learn methods like faith and CWT and three circles and EE to share our faith with. Is that what it says? I desire then that in every place the men should, what? Say it out loud. How you get in on what God's doing in the world? You got to pray. Let me answer two questions quickly in the few minutes I have left. Number one, how important is prayer? Paul tells us, he says, first of all. Here's what he's saying to Timothy. Timothy, God wants to see the world come to know him. God's given Jesus so the world can come know him. God's called us to take this message to them. But Timothy, let's get first things first. If we're going to get in on what God's doing in the world, here's what we got to do. We got to pray. And then he said, I urge. Now this is important because the phrase I urge could have been I command because Paul was an apostle. Which means Paul walked into any church, he was immediately in charge. That's what it meant to be an apostle. He had authority to walk into any church, and the pastor now was in submission to him. He was the apostle. He could have said, Timothy, I command you to pray, but that's not what he said. The phrase I urge 
It's a phrase that it, it, it describes. So, so this last season, I don't know who you follow in the NFL. My, I, I'm, I'm in Las Vegas. We got the Raiders. And this last season, I've been to, I was a chaplain for the Las Vegas Raiders. So uh, that, that gets an incredible opportunity to be able to, you're in the locker room, you're on the practice field, you're in the huddle on the practice field, you travel with the team, get to pray in the locker room with the guys. And I've been in there to hear the coaches do their pregame speech. Our season started with a head coach and the pregame speech is, then we got a new head coach about halfway through the season, Antonio Pierce, and AP knows how to give a pregame speech. Like, AP is done. Like, the first six weeks of the season when things weren't going so good and the coach, the pregame speech, he's, he's really great at, at offensive and analysis and stats and all that kind of stuff. But the pregame speech, I'm sitting there as a preacher. I'm like, dude, if you'll give me this moment, man, I can help this team. <laughs> but when AP got the job, AP came in and he gave that pregame speech. And when he got done, I was ready to charge hell with a water pistol. <laughs> That's our urge. Paul is a coach in the locker room. And he's saying, man, we're about to go out on the field of battle. And God is at work in the world. And he desires people to come to know him. And he's given Jesus so people can come to know him. And he's called us to go tell this message to the ends of the earth. So I'm begging you, get on your knees and pray. Pray. Then in verse 8, he said, I desire then. The word then, it's a Greek word, soon. In the Greek language, it means therefore or because I just said this, let me draw this conclusion. What did he just say? He just said God wants everybody to come to know him. God's given Jesus so they can come to know him. God's called us to go tell them how they can come to know him. Therefore, based on that, I want everybody to pray. How important is prayer? I think Paul said it's pretty important. A.J. Gordon said it this way. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Here's the second thing. How should we pray? How should we pray? Well, Paul in verse 1 uses several words to describe prayer. Supplication, prayer, intercession, thanksgiving. Those words describe different aspects of how we should pray. I'm going to give them to you quickly. Number one, we should pray urgently. That's the word supplication. The word supplication is a word that means prayer arising from a sense of need. Knowing what is lacking, we plead with God to supply it. As you and I look out on our world, I think all of us would be honest enough to say, man, the world is jacked, it's broken. It's a mess out there. Amen? Here's what Paul's saying. You can do more in five minutes of praying about that than you can in five hours of posting about that. Like if we just take the time we spend complaining about the world on social media and channel that into time sitting before the Father to talk to him about what he wants to do in the world... Now we're inviting the Father to begin to unleash His power in a way that can really change things. Here's the bottom line. Legislation is not going to change the world. Education is not going to change the world. Politicians is not going to change the world. But I'm telling you, a move of the Holy Spirit of God can and will change the world. But it won't be unleashed unless we pray. 
we got to pray with a sense of urgency. Number two, we should pray desperately. It's the word prayers here in the text. The word prayers is the most generic word for praying in all the Bible. Prayer is motivated by a sense of desperation. Your prayer life is a metric for how desperate you are for God. Let me say that. Let me say it again. Your prayer life is a metric for how desperate you are for God. My friend Daniel Henderson says it this way. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. What does that mean? Here's what that means. You know when you pray the most? When you're the most desperate. If you don't believe me, let your mom or dad or brother or sister or you go to the doctor tomorrow. And let the doctor tell you, man, I'm sorry, but... We found something in the scan, and you've only got six months to live. You might not have been a prayer warrior on the way into that doctor's appointment. But let me tell you what you are on the way out of that doctor's appointment. You a prayer warrior. Not only that, you blowing up all of our phones, wanting all us to pray. You know why? Because you just got desperate. You know the problem? We are that desperate and we just don't know it. You're that desperate right now. I'm that desperate right now. But because life just rolls along because you're young, it's just like every day's another day. And here's the deal, man. You are The only reason you woke up this morning with breath in your body is because a sovereign God and his grace allowed you to. We're desperate. We need to pray with a sense of desperation. You know how the early church saw God move in power? If you study the people in Acts chapter 1, those were not people that you'd pick to be on your team to change the world. Like if you study the people in the original disciples, like it was not a who's who list of super Christians. It was a bunch of ordinary nobodies that saw the world. We're sitting here today in the tracks that they laid down following Jesus. But did you know that if you read the book of Acts 26 times in 28 chapters, you know what you find them doing? Praying. They were desperate. They knew if God's not God, we're sunk. Number three, we should pray passionately. It's the word intercessors. It means to plead in the interest of another without holding back because you understand. You know the problem with some of us? Some of us have been saved too long. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. You've forgotten what it's like to be lost. That's why you can talk about lost people the way you talk about lost people. Let me give you a deep theological reality. Here it is. Lost people act like lost people because they're lost people. That's it. The only reason you don't act like that is because God in his grace saved you. And we've forgotten what it's like to be lost. If you wake up today with problems, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to run to God. You know the problem with most of the world? They don't know God. So they got nobody to turn to. Same problems. When we get back to that mentality of understanding the lostness of the world, we begin to pray with a sense of passion. 
Number four, we should pray expectantly. It's thanksgivings. Paul says to pray with thanksgivings. What is that? Thanking God for what he's going to do. And lastly, we should pray corporately. All of the terms in 1 Timothy 2 talking about prayer are plural. What do you mean by that? He wasn't talking to us as individuals to pray. He was talking about us praying together. Do we need to pray individually? Yes. But here's what I'm telling you. There's something that, that happens when we pray together that transcends our praying individually. You know what's tragic in the church in America? We'll sing for 30, 40 minutes in service. We'll preach for 30, 40 minutes in service. How long do we pray? You know what we've done? We've relegated praying together to moments of transition when we move the band on and off the stage. We don't pray to pray anymore. We just pray to change the set while nobody's looking. I'm not saying it's wrong to move stuff while we pray. I'm saying it's wrong to just pray to move stuff. We have the largest churches on the American continent we've ever had in the history of the United States of America. With, from a percentage standpoint, fewer people attending church in America than we've ever had in the history of America. Let me tell you what that means. We're doing something wrong. We got buildings, we got budgets, we got preachers, we got bands, we got planning center. But let me tell you what we don't have. We don't have the power of God. And we won't taste the power of God till we begin to pray. I did something at our church in Las Vegas. I got deeply convicted about this in 2015. We carved out 10 minutes in every weekend service. I take a verse of scripture and lead the church to pray corporately, the whole church. 4,000 people there in a weekend. Lead the whole church to pray. People say, you can't do that. What, what, what about lost people who come to your church? Let me tell you what I discovered. When lost people come to a church, they expect us to talk to God. Not only that, they actually came to our church hoping we'd show them how they could talk to God. And when all we do is let paid professionals with articulate language stand on a stage with a microphone and pray. We create a chasm that says, listen, you can't talk to God. You need us to do that for you. But when we take the word of God and we let the word of God become the centerpiece of a conversation, we lead the whole family to have with the father. We invite the manifest presence of God to move in power. And that's what we saw happen in our church in Las Vegas from 2015 on. We began to evaluate our services differently. We didn't look back on Sunday and say, okay, did we get everything right? Planning center good. Hit all our marks. Hit all our times. All the notes okay. Here's the question we begin to ask. What happened yesterday that can only be described as God showed up? And if we, did through, we went through a whole Sunday and we couldn't answer one thing that we saw that only God did that, we knew we missed it that weekend. And we began to see God do miraculous. We've seen people healed. We've seen salvation stories that will blow your mind. We've seen unreached peoples on the other side of the world where there hadn't been a gospel presence in a hundred years. See church planting movements begin to take place. It ain't nothing special about us. Here's what I'm telling you. When we begin to pray, when we seek God in prayer, we experience God in power. And when we don't, we don't. Let's bow our heads. 
about to let you go. We got three minutes. We're supposed to dismiss. Psalm 34 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We're about to pray together for two minutes. All right. Here's what he said. We're going to exalt his name together. The word exalt means to lift up. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something we do at our church often. One at a time, as you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit of God, I want you to just shout out a name of God. And here's what I want the rest of you to do. When you hear somebody shout out a name of God, you're going to lean into the hard work of prayer. I want you to begin to lift up that name. If somebody says Jehovah Jireh, meaning God our provider, then what you do, you begin to thank God for ways he's provided for you. You begin to talk to God right now. Make sense? So just bow your heads. Somebody shout out a name of God. What's one of God's names in the Bible? Yahweh. Now, right now, you lean into the heart. Prayer is hard work. The disciples fell asleep doing it three times. It's hard work. You lean into the hard work. Jehovah, Yahweh, speaks to the eternality of God. He always has been and he always will be. Right now, you begin to worship God because he's Yahweh. What's another name? Emmanuel. What does that mean? Somebody say it. God what? Oh, did you hear that? You don't have to conjure up the presence of God. You don't have to create an atmosphere. God, God who created everything. We can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell. God is with us. Now talk to him. Worship him. What's another one? Jaira, our provider. Think of ways God's provided for you. And right now, worship him. Exalt him for being a faithful provider in your life. So what we did, we just took one phrase of Scripture. We just let the whole room have a conversation with the Father around one phrase of Scripture. And we probably accomplished more in two minutes of talking to God than we will in four hours of sitting and listening to sermons. Father, move among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for your time.